really with the DEA at the moment. That's not where any action is happening. The action is happening over at the borders and with Homeland Security and Customs. So we decided to turn our attention towards that and, and try to find out like what's going on with all this ayahuasca? Where is it? Who's got their hands on it? How is it being stored? How did they pick out which ones are gonna, which boxes they're gonna search? And then how do they decide which of those boxes is going to receive the formal notice that triggers the petition for release statutes that are available to people who've had something seized by the government. Yeah. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Follow you completely. Right. So, yeah. So my, my, my only client, my one and only client is the Church of the Eagle and the Condor. And I really don't want any other clients. I want one and only one. And that's because <laughs> I don't want any bad, bad facts <laughs> appearing, you know, and the more you, the more cooks you have in the kitchen, the more bad facts are possible. Absolutely. And this church is, is, has got, they have got everything all in order and all their ducks in a row. They know what they're doing. They have good processes, procedures, and systems, and I trust them. You know, they're, they're carrying really good medicine. So we decided instead that we would try to see if we can ask for this ayahuasca back. Because it's like, um, you know, like, if the Catholic Church had their sacramental wine seized by the government, they would spare no effort to go and get it back because yep. that's a sacred sacrament. Similarly, ayahuasca is a sacred sacrament. It does not belong in the custody of the government. Um, yes, it's a Schedule One controlled substance. And we also know that there is a religious exemption for, for um, ayahuasca in America. And so right now, um, in, in fact, today, uh, the Church of the Eagle and the Condor and Chacruna sent out two FOIA requests, one to the DEA and one to Customs, to ask what's going on and please give us all your information and you know, disclose to us what's happening with this ayahuasca. How are they deciding who would get the formal notice, who would not, um, who would be prosecuted, who might not? You know, we, don't, we don't know what they're, what they're even doing with it. Where are they storing it and how long will they store it for? Are they going to destroy it? Well, what if we have a right to that? Are they going to pay it back? So we don't we don't know anything yet, and those um, FOIA requests were just sent, and we should hear something back in 20 days. Of course, okay. the response is going to be we need more time. Yeah, and and for the audience's sake, who uh, the bulk are probably not lawyers, um, FOIA request is a, a petition you can serve on the federal government under certain federal freedom of information statutes. It's actually what the acronym stands for. It's the Freedom of Information Act, and the government is in most instances supposed to divulge 
information it has in its possession. There are some limitations, uh, security being the obvious one, but public data is public data and the public is supposed to be able to access it, but there's a procedure you follow in order to formally make these requests. And that's what Martha's referring to. Um, interesting. So uh, what, I don't know the answer to this, I'm hoping you do, but what is the shelf life of the ayahuasca? Are you guys like running up against a clock where it will go rancid or bad after a certain period of time? I don't think it's super short. It depends on how it was made and how it's been packaged. Um, I think a lot of them actually will, will be packaged in you know, like uh, foil pouches of some kind that are um, airtight. And I think that that will last for a while, mm. but still, you know, uh, under what conditions are, it, it, I mean, it does, it should be refrigerated. Yeah. Um, so I hope they're refrigerating it. If it's refrigerated, it could last a really, really, really long time. Yeah. And the distinction, want, yeah, the distinction here is, is that, you know, if you've got an object that was seized and it's not perishable, okay, you're deprived of it for a period of time until you can resolve things with the government. But with something like a, a plant-based entheogen, it's perishable. So you're, you're not only deprived of the use, you're also racing a clock for its useful lifespan. So that deprivation at the border on day one could be very, very bad for you as, as the recipient being deprived of your property rights. That's right, right. Um, and we'd like to find out if there is any, um, any, any process by which uh, you know a, a religious exempt someone who would be entitled to a religious exemption could go get their ayahuasca back or get some kind of satisfaction we don't know that yet um, that's one of the things we're really interested in finding out is how the government is going to decide who what is bona fide use and what isn't and i think that's actually the, the critical question um, legally who decides who gets their ayahuasca back or who's allowed to have ceremony and who's not I just don't, I really don't think it should be the DEA. I don't think they're in a position to make that, that choice um, in a neutral manner at all. Yeah, and, and that is probably a perfect segue to talking about RIFRA. So let's, uh, let's tie that in and extend this conversation one level deeper. Mm -hmm. um, so laying some premise down for the audience, um, we have a federal body of law known as the Religious Freedom Restoration Act, or RIFRA for short. And what RIFRA accomplished was, strangely enough, the re-establishment of a standard that used to be. Um, but during the uh, Scalia reign on the Supreme Court, got done away with. There was a, a case called Smith v. Oregon, where Scalia, in the opinion, had wiped away uh, decades uh, of the old compelling interest test that the government basically bore the burden of showing that its regulatory authority was um, the least restrictive means over somebody's religious practice. So um, if, the, if a regulation prohibited somebody from doing something or required them to do something that was antithetical to their religious practice, the government basically had to prove up that this was really a necessary thing and, and was applied uniformly without discrimination. But in the Smith v. Oregon case, Scalia wiped that away uh, in favor of letting the uh, state or federal law reign supreme over religious practice. Um, and that in turn caused an immediate, immediate seismic response from um, really every possible corner and groups of uh, religious organizations who would under any other circumstance never come together 
all came together. And within, I think, three years of, of the or Smith v. Oregon case, RIFRA was born uh, and was enacted into law during yeah. the Clinton administration. And um, I think it was unanimous or nearly unanimous. Oh, yeah, yeah, and yeah. That was, and, yeah. Yeah, yeah, it, it, yeah, it fetched um, almost no dissent from any corner of Congress whatsoever. Uh, and, and President Clinton signed it into law immediately. And, and that was, I think, 1993. And RIFRA has been the standard ever since. And, and what it did was reestablished at the federal level, this compelling interest test that, again, puts the burden on the government uh, where, it, where it properly belongs. Yeah, it's a strict scrutiny test, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because because yeah. it implicates yeah. First Amendment religious freedom issue. And again, yeah. super simplifying it because the law is a little bit all over the board on this. Um, but super simplifying it, the government is free to regulate really anything that the Constitution permits it to regulate, and that sometimes can collide with religious freedom. So when the right to regulate collides with religious freedom, the government, absent a compelling interest, is the party that must yield. And that's the contest the courts weigh when these cases come in. Um, so that sets the stage for, for the next piece of our conversation here related to your, your work. So you've got a government agency seizing a religious sacrament. And this is a problem for, for the church because it has a religious right to engage in that sacrament. So Absolutely. thus far, have, has either customs or DEA called into question the, the validity of the religion itself? Or is it just strictly a, eh, we think this is a, a, a legal substance question only? Uh, oh, we, have, we don't know anything about what they're thinking. <laughs> Okay, we have, fair there's enough. been no communication between us and them yet. Okay. Um, you know, our first foray, foray is the um, FOIA request. The next, the next step is for us to make the contact with the agency to find out if, you know, if they'll just work with us to see if we can work it out. Um, we haven't heard anything from Customs or Homeland. We don't know what they're thinking when it comes to RIFRA or, you know, churches using ayahuasca as a principal sacrament. We do know more about what the DEA is thinking um, and read what their position is with respect to the CSA. Yeah. Um, so I can't really say anything yet about customs or homeland. I, you know, I think, uh, I think there's there's not a lot. There's in fact, I don't think there's any real basis on which the DEA can say that it is the proper agency at the moment to regulate ayahuasca use in, in a religious setting. Um, there's, there's nothing in either the Controlled Substances Act that refers to religion, religious exemption, religious belief, nothing. The word isn't yeah. even mentioned. Um, there's nothing in the APA. They've never gone through anything that looks like formal rulemaking regarding um, creating exemptions or petitions or whatever. So that two-page document failed all those tests of what an agency is supposed to do in order yeah. to you know regulate in the religious arena um so i, I you know I, th I don't know if you've seen the paper that i wrote on chakruna about this with brad bartlett but um you know i basically I, uh, the vi the visual is it says dea with a big slash through it yeah um, i uh, some months ago i remember reviewing that yes yeah yeah and i just don't think that the dea is the right entity nor do they have any enabling um, statutes or power or criteria under which to make these decisions yeah i, I tend to i tend to agree and in the last few weeks knowing that we were going to be having this conversation i've been thinking on this 
And the deeper I get into this, the more I kind of see that the DEA, if it really wants to assert it even has authority here, would have to necessarily and inescapably promulgate what it considers to be the minimum necessary elements to be a religion. And they're absolutely not tooled for that. And I think the reason they'd have to provide those minimum elements is because they're also arbiter of whether or not you get the exemption. And that puts them in the conundrum that they're now having to be an agency that is effectively considering and weighing the merits of what is a religion and what is not. And boy, yeah, what I, a First Amendment problem they've got there. So I'm actually yeah, sympathetic yeah. to the DEA over this. I think they realize the absolute tar baby they've got. And I don't blame if they would want to hot potato it to some other agency, because I yeah. don't think they've got any voice in this at all. The only thing that's missing is yeah. their open admission that that is in fact true. Yeah. And I, there is some indication that they are intending to pass judgment on religiosity. So in my shorthand, I, it's, that's how I think of it is deciding what is a religion is a, yeah. is a determination of what qualifies for a religion, right. uh, which is in a Venn diagram. It's what's in. And then there's another segment of that uh, is like what what can we identify as what's out of that sort of embrace of the First Amendment. Um, First Amendment law, in my mind, the way I'm reading it, has really gone more and more, uh, more, more and more towards like all in a bigger embrace for what religious religion is, yeah, and more specific about what it's not. And I think that the, if the DEA is going to get into this rulemaking, they almost have to do an all in and less analysis, right? Almost like the IRS's analysis of uh, if you're a church then you're automatically tax exempt unless you do something that actually shows that you're not a church so i think it's going to have to come down to something like that to be you know really careful and fair because the government has gotten this question wrong so badly so often their history is just peppered with terrible decisions in this respect and the case law bears that out the case like judges they're not even bothering with with saying uh, like let's do a myers analysis on this religion and see if it's actually religion it looks more like in fact there's a really a couple really good cases that neil gorsuch wrote the opinion on where he basically sets aside the what is religion and is is focusing exclusively on what it's not what he says is like like the the government's sole responsibility is to ensure that the claimant or the the defendant or whoever's using the RIFRA claim is not perpetuating a fraud on the government. And that's it. If, they're, if they believe what they're saying, then the rest of the analysis should not even proceed. Um, the exception to that was a case, I've forgotten the name of it, but it's a, the Flying Spaghetti Monster case. Did you yeah. see that one? Yeah, yeah. There, there, it was um, that particular one, because there are a few Flying Spaghetti Monster cases, uh, <laughs> but the, which, you know, only, only in America. Um, but the particular one involved a uh, prisoner who wanted to get certain religious yes. uh, practice benefits while in prison. And the wrinkle there is when you're in prison, you're not forbidden from religious practice, but you're in prison, man. So there are some complications that come with it. Uh, so yeah, there are forms to fill out and certain permissions you've got to get. And he put in uh, for his spaghetti monster privileges, or they're called pastafarians. Um, yep. 
And their leader, by the way, is Ramen. That's true. Um, I'm not making this up. Anyway, the reviewing court looked at the whole thing and said, this is not an actual religion. Uh, the court did actually exercise authority to render an opinion on this uh, and determined that the Church of the Flying Spaghetti Monster, at least in their jurisdiction, was not religion, but was instead parody of religion. And uh, the prisoner was denied the religious benefits that he might uh, arguably otherwise have gotten. Right. The, the, an interesting feature of that analysis was that they first did the sincerity analysis. Mm -hmm. Did he believe what he was saying? And they said, yes, he does. He totally believes in, in the faith of the flying yeah. spaghetti monster. But you know, the, the reality is, is that the church itself was a mockery or a parody yeah. of religion. And so they did go backwards and do the religiosity analysis, but not until they kind of got stuck with the other one. So I like the idea of doing since like the, the sincerity finding, which is really a credibility, a matter of law, fact, not a matter of law, before you address that whole, like, is a church a real religion or not? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> yeah. Sometimes they, they just can't, can't get around it because it's clearly a mockery. Um, there's ulterior motives. So I think like deception is probably the key. You know, if people are really sincere and they really believe what they're doing is right and they're showing up and they're doing good work, they have good processes, good procedures, good protocols. Yeah. Um, I, I don't think the DEA should be trying to to discern between you know religion that is a, you know that's maybe has a Christian element and one that doesn't. Mm -hmm. You know, just because this looks more familiar to them, I don't. I don't think I want them making that that discernment. I don't think they're tooled for that. Yeah, to totally agree. Um, and if they even made the attempt, that would be a great. Uh, offense to First Amendment, and uh, you know that in turn is our segue to the Tonson case. So, <laughs> so let's talk about Tonson v. Tom Beer now and how that intersects with Refra and in turn the work you're doing for Eagle and Condor. Mm -hmm. So, in late 2020, just a few months back, the Supreme Court issued a Refra case uh, decision, um, and I, I was going to say rare, but it's not really rare. We had a Hobby Lobby decision just a few years earlier. Yeah. And um, I will say one thing in preface before I dive into Tonson. Um, during the Trump administration, there were three appointments to the Supreme Court. All three were considered to be very religiously conservative, and this caused a lot of consternation in the public, uh, at least some aspect of the public. But I think in terms of psychedelic religions, it might prove to be of great benefit, uh, because I think these justices, when they are faced with religious observance questions, because they do take it so personally, I think they will think very deeply on it. And, and to your point, Martha, you used the example earlier about, uh, you know, for example, the Catholic Church's sacramental wine being uh, seized or regulated, uh, you know, the Catholic Church would no doubt um, respond to that negatively. And I, I think because of that, uh, they would necessarily have to step in and defend things like um, ayahuasca on premise that Sacrament to sacrament to sacrament. Uh, and if you're willing to accept regulation of one on a religion, you have to accept that regulation on your religion as well. And I, I suspect most religious groups would take great offense to that. Oh, I think so. You know, just like in the UDB case, the Gonzalez v. Ocentro case. Yeah. That um, the, the amicus briefs in that are worthy of some time, you know, for, especially for the law geeks out there. Those amicus briefs were so... Uh, you know, far ranging, but a lot of them were from uh, religious conservative groups. 
which goes yeah. to show that this issue is it, it's um, nonpartisan. You know, we we all want our religious rights, whether you happen to be a liberal or a conservative, and it just so happens that you know liberal churches are maybe springing up wanting to use controlled substances. So yeah, yeah so let's talk about the Tanzan case. Yeah, so on, on the Tanzan case, um, that came out at the uh, end of last year, and the short version of the story is a, a few Muslim men were approached by the FBI. Uh, and requested to serve as informants for the FBI. And they declined the opportunity, following which they found themselves on a no-fly list. They, they couldn't travel freely around the country or board airplanes. Um, they asserted this was because of the FBI taking retributive action against them for their refusal to participate as informants. Um, and they were singled out specifically because they were Muslim and, and the FBI, I suppose, was wanting information from within that community. Um, so the Tonson case ends up going all the way up to the US Supreme Court. And bottom line is the Supreme Court decided that there is actually ability for plaintiffs under RIFRA to pursue money damages, which for the last roughly 30 years, I guess people just assume that wasn't there. Uh, but the Supreme Court confirms that indeed, if you are a victim of discrimination by a federal officer or agent, or the federal government's agencies, uh, plural or singular, um, you can pursue a money damages claim if you can demonstrate it. So that now sets the stage for uh, your problem of ayahuasca being seized back at the border and thus we come full circle. <laughs> so right. how do we well, use Tonson effectively? I, I think that's got to scare the bejesus out of any governmental agency um, and anybody in a position of decision making. You know, they have to really make sure that they're not being discriminatory. I'm I'm not entirely sure. I mean, we don't have a plan to litigate. If we have to litigate, we'll litigate. We will certainly uh, exhaust our administrative remedies as far as we can. And we'll hopefully, uh, you know, get it settled that way. But if not, I mean, Tanzan allows a plaintiff to sue agents in their personal capacity. Yeah for money damage against them personally. Yep. That has to be like terrifying to people at the border when they're dealing with ayahuasca if they don't know what they're doing or if they decide, well, you know, this this ayahuasca is it's an illegal substance we're going to throw it away or we're going to destroy it. You know, I, I I would not want to be that person making that choice. Yeah, I I think it forces the agent to have to be way more conscientious than than time permits them to be during performance of their job duties. I think it probably forces those agents to have to go back to their managers and, and their uh, superiors to get much better and much more specific guidance, which is currently not there. Right. Um, so yeah. I, I think you're right. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I think that case is going to get distinguished in some capacity because those agents, I, I think in that case, that was pretty egregious, you know, that was retrib retribution, you know, we're not supposed to do that. Um, but I do wonder about all of those 80 folks who've had their ayahuasca seized, they, their name is somewhere in a database. Now yeah. what's going to happen? Will the government now like be investigating them on the down low? Um, you know, we do know that there's been three encounters of people who've had their ayahuasca seized with, the, with a governmental agency, one with Homeland and two with local or state law enforcement. 
um, one gentleman did receive the formal notice and he uh, declined to appear personally, but he sent his lawyer and the lawyer said, said well, it's a good thing you didn't go because they would have arrested you. Um, another gentleman in Florida was arrested and he's working it out right now trying to find good, good attorneys to represent mm. him who know what they're doing with the First Amendment case, with the RIFRA case. Um, because it's a very like niche area, especially when it comes to ayahuasca or psilocybin. Yeah. Um, there's not many lawyers that know what they're doing in the criminal setting there with RIFRA. So I, I, I think they're probably going to have to distinguish that based on that, like the level of egregiousness of the activity of the agents. But, you know, to be able to get money out of a governmental agent, yeah, they, they have to be thinking long and hard about what they're going to do and how, how they're going to behave in the setting. Yeah, uh, agreed. And for the audience's benefit, just so you understand, um, typically federal agencies and their agents enjoy sovereign immunity. Um, they are usually not able to be sued, and if they are sued, damages are limited. Even with this RIFRA ruling, um, there's still no ability to get punitive damages whatsoever, and oftentimes that does make the difference because your intrinsic damage might be just a few dollars you know, if just a small item is seized and it doesn't have a high intrinsic value. Um, but in order to change behavior, sometimes you want to pursue a punitive damage claim because that's the instruction to the offender from the court that, hey, I'm punishing you financially to uh, get you to behave a certain way. Oop, I see we lost Martha's connection. Uh, internet is betraying her. Oh, she's back. You're back. <laughs> we're having we're having rotten luck with internet. Um, that's okay. I was I was explaining uh, while you were uh, reconnecting about the limitation that punitive damage is not available, um, but attorneys' fees are. So uh, for young intrepid lawyers looking to cut a, a, a name for themselves in the community, who are also possibly willing to take these things on uh, a, a risk of not being paid. Um, there is an opportunity. If you take on these cases against the federal government and prevail, you can put in a fee application and possibly get a fee award and be compensated for your time. Um, so to the youngsters who are, are looking for new careers in law, think about that. Well, the, the two ayahuasca cases that were successful, the circuit court case in um, uh, Church of the Holy Light of the Queen and the UDV case, they both got attorney's fees. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, and, and I think you, it was a lot. <laughs> yeah, well, these cases demand it. Uh, the number for the non-lawyers to get a case up to the Supreme Court and then actually through the Supreme Court, you're going to have to punch through possibly multiple trial court levels, multiple lower appellate court levels, just for the possibility the Supreme Court says yes to reviewing your case. And there's no guarantee. So to get from the very first day where you're thinking I might actually want a case to being in the Supreme Court, hundreds of thousands of dollars of lawyer time. Can't right. even begin <laughs> to express how expensive it is and how many hours go into this. Um, so these cases are rare and special unicorns uh, and there aren't that many lawyers out there who are, are hunting those unicorns. Um, but I think more are coming and, and it's a good thing. Yeah, you know, God bless Jeffrey Bronfman with UDV and um, Jonathan uh, Goldman with CHLQ. Those two gentlemen, they paved a pretty good road. They set us set us up nicely. 
Um, and yet, you know, we, you know, we aren't really able to take advantage of the work that they did in the way I, that I think a lot of people would wish. So, um, yeah, so in light of that, you know, with the Church of the Eagle and the Condor and its board deciding that they're ready to take the step, um, it's, like I told you, it's a tiny little church. Um, we engaged in a, a crowdfund campaign with mm -hmm. Chikruna and launched that. Uh, and I think we, we have like, I think it's like 48 or close to $50,000 raised. The crowdfund page, I don't know if you if you can post it or not, but uh, it currently says 28,000, but we have another 20 plus thousand pledged for the remainder of the year. So we're ready to move forward. We have enough to get us to um, probably district court and to at least a hearing if we mm. had to. We'd love to just get this through the administrative process and call it done, but we may not. We might have to you know, go farther. And if we do, I think we'll need to rally, rally again, rally around this church, around Chikruna, um, to the degree that we can, and the whole maybe the whole community chip in and help make this work. Um, so there's there's more than more than just me on that. I'm I'm a managing attorney on this project. There are other attorneys, um, you know, and I'll pick the people who are doing in the right seat on the bus and make sure that we have enough people sure. to do this job. Hang on. So if um, people wanted to reach out to you to get more information about you, your practice, or, or what you're doing with the church, how, how, can, they, how can they do that? Well, um, my, I can give you my email. I have, I have a couple. I should actually put a link tree up on my Instagram. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Instagram, LinkedIn. Um, my, just search my name. You'll find me all over the place. And if somebody actually wanted to have a, you know, a consultation i think i probably would entertain that for um, organizations that are already churches but if somebody is a soloist or a therapist i probably really would not confer on that um, because there's not there's a lot of groundwork that has to be done first sure um, if if somebody is interested in donating uh, we would certainly appreciate that that would give us more legs and, and more runway um, the the crowdfund i can give you the link to that and maybe you can post it yeah yeah absolutely and, yeah my uh website my heartney law website is heartneylaw.com my email is martha at heartneylaw.com and i have a, a personal like i do some private coaching for people who are going through ceremony work and they need um, some integration help and support over at the heart of the matter.com which is t-h-e-h-a-r-t of the matter wonderful and i see we're just about at the top of the hour so i'm going to give you last word what would you like people to know? Mm. Well, I think I think I would love for people to actually say some prayers uh, and lift up this whole um, the cause of good medicine done well by people who prepared um, and have uh, have great support. So, you know, lifting up a prayer to the Church of the Eagle and the Condor for doing really good work and um, knowing what they're doing. Um, that's it. All right. Well, wonderful. I really appreciate uh, your time today. Have a question about psychedelics and the law? You're welcome to submit them. Please send your questions to admin at psychedelicalex.com. Submission of questions is not an assurance that they will be used on the show. Also, please be aware that neither the submission of a question nor a response creates an attorney-client privilege between you and the show's host nor does an answer constitute legal advice. 
Information provided is for general purposes only. If you need legal counsel, you should hire competent counsel in your community. Thank mm-hmm. you.